We conclude a sermon series today that I have lovingly called Frozen to Theology, The Next Right Thing. In the latest Disney hit Frozen 2, the cast of characters managed to save the kingdom by always doing the next right thing. Reverend Andy Bryan, senior pastor of Manchester United Methodist Church, used this example in a Pathways meeting we both serve in one day, and it just stuck. We both have used the movie several times as a way to remember to always do the next right thing. Over this series, we have discussed how we make decisions when we are overwhelmed or when we don't know what to do or what the future holds. Last week, Pastor Tim talked about making decisions when they are difficult. We talked about leaning into our faith during difficult times such as these. Today, we're going to go in a bit of a different direction. What if we make the wrong decision? What if we make a mistake? Hey, newsflash, none of us are perfect people. Sometimes the mistake is as clear as the nose on our face, and sometimes the wrong decision doesn't make itself known until much later on in life. Facing our mistakes can be painful, and sometimes we can approach seeking forgiveness a little like a toddler does when you want them to say they are sorry to their friend. Instead, they talk about their necklace or the rain outside or anything else. You ever been there? You ever wanted to change the subject or avoid the topic altogether? Facing our own sinfulness and saying, I am sorry to the person we may have hurt in the process can be difficult to say the least. I am sure the woman who was caught in adultery and brought before Jesus wanted to be anywhere else. I'm sure she wanted to talk about anything else rather than have her sins on display for all to see. I've asked Todd Gibbs, our college intern for the summer, to read us the passage from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he returned to the temple. All the people gathered around him, and he sat down and taught them. The legal experts and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Placing her in the center of the group, they said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone women like this. What do you say? They said this to test him, because they wanted a reason to bring an accusation against him. Jesus bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. They continued to question him, so he stood up and replied, Whoever hasn't sinned should throw the first stone. Bending down again, he wrote on the ground. Those who heard him went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. Finally, only Jesus and the woman were left in the middle of the crowd. Jesus stood up to her and said, Woman, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? She said, No one, sir. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, don't sin anymore. I know you will want to thank Todd for interning with us during these unusual times as he heads back to college on August 15th. We pray for safety and wellness for him this year. 
As a woman, this story in the Gospel of John brings about a few emotions within me. Anger, sadness, and finally relief. The story begins at dawn. Jesus had just traveled from the Mount of Olives to the temple courts where the people gathered to hear him teach. The teacher would sit in the courtyard and people would gather from near and far and Jesus always gathered a crowd. The Pharisees and scribes bring a woman caught in adultery before Jesus, saying the law of Moses calls for her stoning, but what do you say? The Mosaic law they speak of comes from Leviticus chapter 20, and Jesus obviously knew the law better than they did because it said, if a man commits adultery with a married woman, committing adultery with a neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be executed. The law clearly states both the adulterer and the adulteress, and yet just the woman stands before Jesus. Jesus responds by bending down and beginning to write in the sand with his finger. Have you ever wondered what Jesus wrote in the sand that day? It is the only place in the scriptures where we experience Jesus writing something. I have always imagined that he wrote the details of each man's sinful life that stood prepared to throw a stone at the woman. Or he wrote the name of the man who was with her. Possibly standing in that same circle, stone in hand even. After all, as my mama always said, it takes two to tango. Obviously, they were there to test or trap Jesus. The woman was being used. She was just mere bait in a trap. And I think that's what makes me so angry. Can you imagine the pain and heartbreak she must have been experiencing? Can you imagine the shame or even the anger as she looked back at her accusers? The scribes and Pharisees dehumanized the woman by calling her sins out before everyone, leaving their own hidden. Anytime we point the finger at someone else's sin, we do just that, dehumanize the individual. We need to remember that when we point the finger, we always have three others pointing back at us. Jesus responds with one of the most memorable statements in the Bible. If any of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. In part, Jesus is echoing Old Testament regulations as those who were eyewitnesses of a crime were to cast the first stone. But as Jesus always does, he adds a new layer. The new layer was this. The first to cast the stones were to be without sin themselves. Everyone watching would know these men and more than likely know they were not sinless. As I said before, we are all in need of grace. As a crowd stood gathered, all eyes were watching in anticipation of what would happen and one by one, the men walked away. The next right thing was vividly clear for all to see. 
Jesus did not approve of her sin. No, he told her she must go and sin no more. But Jesus offered her grace, not permission. Yet with God, forgiveness is always the next right thing. This story teaches us some very important things about life, relationships, and decisions. We should always think about the person first. We ask God to help us see the person, not the act. The religious leaders wanted Jesus to see the act of adultery. They did not want him to see the woman standing before him. This woman had a name. The Bible does not give us her name, as many women were not given names. There is the woman who had a hemorrhage, the woman who stood at the cross, the woman who anointed Jesus, the generous widow, and many, many more. In fact, nearly 50% of the women mentioned in the Bible are not named, but God knows their name. Even though they are not named by the biblical writers, they live in us still today. Jesus sees beyond the act and sees beyond the sin, sees beyond the brokenness and sees the person. Jesus teaches us when faced with the decision of looking at action or person, the next right thing is to say, I choose you, not what you did. With God, forgiveness is always the next right thing. Romans 8 verse 1 says this, So now there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus asked the woman, Is there no one here to condemn you? And she says, No one, sir. And he says, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. In other words, I choose you, not your action. Your life can be different now, a life filled with joy and hope, a life now filled in grace. Jesus is telling each of us that, that we are more to him than the sum total of all of our mistakes and bad decisions. Thanks be to God. The worst thing we ever did is not the thing Jesus remembers about us. He sees us for what we can still become. A life in grace and a life in fear cannot live together. I often wondered about the woman days after she left the temple that day. How her life must have been different, transformed. Did she in turn offer forgiveness to the men who used her that day in an attempt to trap Jesus? Something tells me she did. Because once you look into the eyes of grace, your life can never be the same. Jesus came to show us who we can become. And as the scriptures say, Jesus was full of grace and truth. He embodied grace. He oozed grace. He was grace. When we realize that grace is God in Jesus Christ, we no longer live in fear of our mistakes because Christ meets us at the point of our need and helps us to do the next right thing. There isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
If the first thing you think of is that you have a get out of jail free card for the rest of your life when you hear that verse, then you might be thinking of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the well-known German theologian and pastor and resistor against the Nazi regime called cheap grace. He said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has it is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Real grace is not a get-out-of-jail-free card, no, but an invitation to love one another and forgive one another as Christ has loved and forgiven us, even when forgiving costs us something. Joe and I have been married for 38 years on August 7th. Not once have I thought, Joe loves me so much that I can do anything I want and he will forgive me. I am not faithful to the concept of our marriage. I am faithful to the person, Joe, who 38 years ago, this August 7th, I said, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. Joe, who I built a life with. Joe, who I had two children with. Joe, who I argue with and I say I'm sorry to, sometimes reluctantly. Joe, who I laugh with and I watch Cardinal baseball with and I go fishing with. Joe, who I know. I am faithful to Joe because I love Joe. And because I love him, I forgive him on those rare occasions when he fires up the leaf blower during my quiet time. And he forgives me on those rare occasions, or maybe more than rare occasions, when I make a mistake. Sometimes when we know we've made a mistake or a bad decision, the hardest person to forgive can be ourselves. But God calls us to do that too. Do me a favor right now. Maybe there's something that you need to forgive yourself for right now that you've been weighed down by. 
Give that over to God right now and forgive yourself for it. God's goodness is so great. God forgives us and also calls us to sin no more. Costly grace asks us to repent, to change and to forgive others as God has forgiven us. Sin has no appeal when the fullness of God's love is before you. When you live embraced by grace, you live in freedom. Freedom to choose the person instead of the action and freedom to forgive as you have been forgiven. With God, forgiveness is always the next right thing. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.